All right. Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. Welcome again to our second segment where we talk about the world of wargaming. And it's not often in the annals of history where opposing generals get to meet each other, let alone record a podcast episode. I'm here today with one of my opponents in wargaming, Colonel Don Vandergrift. Don, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. And Bill, I'm thank you. I'm honored to be here to help you out any way I can. Well, we appreciate to have you. So do you mind just uh, talking to the audience and just do a little bit of background information, how you got in the Marine Corps, the Army, uh, where you went from them, some of the works you published, and then we could uh, can go from there. Sure. I, I have been a war, game since, war gamer since I was age 10. My first war game was Avalon Hills Blitzkrieg. And then my dad, for a Christmas present in 1976, at the age of 13, gave me the first copy of uh, SPI's Simulation Publications Incorporated, uh, Terrible Swiss Sword, the Battle of Gettysburg, the regimental battle, and I fell in love with that. I collected all the maps and then all the war games. I played in clubs. I started clubs. And then at the age of 13, I also volunteered to be a volunteer at Chickamauga Battlefield. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And uh, every summer I spent down there in the library and, and reenacting and so forth. Uh, well, my goal was always to go in the military, to either be an infantry officer, tanker, or artilleryman. Uh, because of my studies and as soon as I turned 18 I joined the Marine Corps and I was a reservist in the 4th Marine Infantry Division. I attended Paris Island in the summer of 81 and then uh, the uh, School of the Infantry right after that became a reservist and then uh, I found out as I uh, grew more mature that the Marines only had two and a half battalions at the time of armor and the Army had like 27. So being, being wanting to be a tanker, I joined Army ROTC as a sergeant in the Army National Guard, 278th Armored Cavalry Regiment. And I did Army ROTC, and then I became an armor officer and went to Korea after Army schools uh, in the summer of uh, 85. And I was in Korea for two years. And then after that, I went to the National Training Center and became an observer controller because of stuff that I'd already written and I was a scout observer controller, which is like a, a trainer. Uh, and then I became the commander of the Op 4 Reconnaissance for, for training the 32nd Motorized Rifle Regiment. It was one of the, if not the best jobs I've ever had in the military, in the Army. And I did that for a year and a half. And then I went off to amphibious warfare school as the Army rep here at Quantico uh, and did that for a year. I was number two in the class. And they even made me uh, uh, one of the first student instructors on the third deck uh, with an office uh, because of my knowledge of wargaming and reconnaissance and uh, maneuver warfare. I first read Bill Lynn's Maneuver Warfare Handbook when it came out in 85, right when I got commissioned. I saw it on the bookshelf in uh, Fort Knox. And I corresponded with Bill and met Bill Lynn in 1991 uh, when I was attending AWS. After that, I had a, a, a great career. I was a commander twice more. I was in the Gulf War as a, as a tank company commander. And uh, after that, uh, I went to graduate school, got a master's in uh, military history, uh, German military history, particularly focused on officer and leader development in the uh, 1860s and 70s. And then I went on and got a postgraduate degree in that. And uh, it led to me doing a lot of, a lot of things about how we educate. Uh, my plum job was becoming the deputy director of Georgetown ROTC uh, right before I retired. That did two things that allowed me to experiment with a way to develop adaptability and mission command, or as the Marines call it, mission orders, maneuver warfare. 
And the other thing it allowed me to start addressing some serious physical health issues I had by because I could take the time to get surgery and all that. And that, all that got fixed. Uh, I'd been a lifelong rugby player. And uh, as a tanker, you're up and down and off. And I was also a boxer and a power lifter. So I wore myself out as well as a war gamer. I was a big, I have over 100 box titles. And now I do electronic war games because it just makes more sense. Like you and I are playing under the James, which was a great discovery when I saw the update to Overland campaign uh, from John Tiller uh, workshop. So that's my background. And now after I got out of the army, I retired uh, after uh, 26 years in 2005. And uh, I became an analyst for the Army TRADOC, Training Doctrine Command. I was uh, hired by a guy named General Burns, who was a TRADOC commander because he was a fan of all my books. And what I went out to do was take what I had done at the Georgetown ROTC. We took them from 241st out of 270th to number one. It was we, not me, because people had to believe in my ideals. And I used the German uh, lesson plans from the 1860s and 70s, which included a lot of war gaming, a lot of staff rides and reflection time and putting people in positions of authority, you know, in the, in the imaginary world or training world where they had to defend their courses of action. So we actually ran a maneuver warfare club at Georgetown for my five years there. And I was, again, I got to stay there five years because I had both feet rebuilt one at a time, one once a year, but that was a great thing because I got to put to practice all the things I learned and we ended up being number one my last two years there in the nation. And the cadets now, I, I retired in 2005, but I still talk to most of them. They're either out of the Army or they're lieutenant colonels and colonels uh, in the Army now. We still talk. And they still say, I just have a letter sitting behind me there from one of my favorite uh, former cadets who is now commander of a special forces battalion. And he said he still uses the stuff I taught him in war game and in tactical decision games. So I, I did that, and then I wanted to change a venue. So in 2013, I went to Afghanistan as a contractor to, uh, and I was fortunately uh, assigned to the Resolute Support Headquarters on uh, leader development. And I got to study the campaign close up. Uh, came home in 2014 and 15, ran my own business for a year, and then Donna Corps called me back to train uh, senior policemen in decision making at Afghanistan. I was there again from. 2015 through 2018. Uh, again, what it did for me as a historian, it kept me abreast of how we were running that campaign. And then as soon as I left Afghanistan in the summer of 2018, General uh, Bill Mullins, the former commander of TCOM and one of the better leaders I've ever worked for, he hired me to bring in my ideals and basically had me work mission command to try to implement his ideals from the 18 July uh, uh, 2018 uh, memorandum he published on how to reform and make Marine Corps learning a lot better. So currently uh, I've been uh, kind of a, like a medical medical lead for a while, but uh, I'm getting a lot of stuff fixed and and I'm also running war, how to teach war gaming and how to do war gaming using the OODA loop, Boyd's Observe, Orient, Decide, Act uh, cycle with a great company called Numerity's, uh Research. They're a tech, IT tech consultant firm but when I did my war games for their staff, they fell in love with it. And we've already done a number of war games for cyber warfare and ransomware warfare games for uh, tech companies and high level 
think tanks in DC. I'm not allowed to disclose those, but they have been one of their recontract venues was they had to have my stuff, more of my stuff. And it, all I'm doing is teaching people through the OODA loop how to do mission command using TDGs, tactical decision games. So it's really going well. I'm very, I'm very blessed, very fortunate that I can do these things that I like. And I've also been the author or editor of seven books, all dealing with education, learning, and how to convert a culture to maneuver warfare. And I've written over 100 articles, some of which, which you've edited in Marine Corps Gazette on how to war game and how to make learning better and how to adapt maneuver warfare to the culture. So that's me in a long show. I'm sorry for being long-winded. Oh, no, please, please. I, I appreciate that. So you brought up a good point that you were, uh, you were around when the Marine Corps was trying to uh, evolve and embrace maneuver warfare. What was it like from the Army's perspective to, to see that happen? And how was the Army's uh, impl implementation process of maneuver warfare? The Army makes, let me, let me start this off because I'll be critical, but there's a lot of great people in both the Marine Corps and Army. So this is not an indictment of any individuals. Their culture the Marine Corps is a smaller organization, though it's a large organization for most world armies. So they can, when Al Gray implemented maneuver warfare uh, through MCDP-1, John Smith's the author, uh, he, he had more power to implement a cultural change. But I, I know Al Gray very well. I have a lot of respect for him. And we wrote back and forth when I interviewed him for my book, Path to Victory, which was how do you change the personnel or manpower system to, to make the Army more like maneuver warfare and Al Gray said his mistake he made when he pushed for maneuver warfare at the end of the 80s and start of the 90s was he didn't reform the manpower system which involves the learning system uh, there was a lot of talk like I said MCDP1 was a great short concise manual uh, but uh, the Marine Corps made more inroads but until you change the manpower system you're not going to do the cultural changes you need. Where, where does wargaming come under this? Well, in the Army, too, the Army is a large organization. When you include the reserves and the active force, they're over a million people. And they're, they've adapted a personnel and training system that's in the mass production. They'll deny that. And there have been improvements in some courses, like the Army Recon course down at Fort Benning, which I was part of. Uh, but those are like temporary stays. All, when the when the champion moves on, the old system takes over, which is industrial age rote memorization and death by PowerPoint lecture. What we've been trying to do, and we've been successful in a lot of places, is use those tools that Germans used in the 1860s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s to build character, build adaptability. And one of those main tools was wargaming, the Kriegspiel, uh, which Bruce Goodmanson in his tactical notebook just put out a good little article last a few days ago on Kriegspiel. Uh, and wargaming. So the when I went to the AW Amphibious Warfare School in 1991, they were really getting into it. It was a great time to go. They did seven uh, electric map, full-size free play force-on-force -force war games with judges and all that. And both sides couldn't see other through Intel what the other side was doing. That is an incredible tool. And the AARs, the after action reviews, must be done correctly. And they were. Bring everyone else. What did you do good? What did you do bad? Why? We're going to focus on some things and learn from it. Just like you said earlier, before we started the show, 
I love playing guys like you that want to talk about what did we do good? What do we do? So you learn from it. Uh, when I ran the maneuver warfare uh, club at Georgetown, we had a creek spills and I got to the point where I had so many cadets sign up to do it that I, I had more cadets than I had positioned for. But going back to your questions, the when General Mullen took over, he was trying to move the Marine Corps into those learning tools that could really promote a, a, a culture of maneuver warfare. Wargaming is a large piece of that. And as we talked about, my good friend, Dr. Bruce Goodmanson has been one of the biggest implementations, imp implementers of that at Quantico, which has been great. Uh, he still does a weekly uh, decision game uh, club, which people from the Marine Corps and all over are part of. They play role play in the decision making games. And so he's still big into it. And uh, that's what I do now. I'm still advocate. My hobby is war gaming. Uh, and so like you and I are playing on the James, which is a new version of the Overland campaign regimental level, a hundred kilometers a hex. So the map's huge, but, uh, it, it's a good way to promote thinking and, uh, sharp, keep your mind sharp as long as you do a good after action review on it. So did I kind of get to what you were looking for there? No, no, thank you. So uh, my uh, my next question then is you gave us your biography. Uh, you, uh, what is your war game biography though? You say you started like around when you were 10. How, what sort of games do you play then? And then how did that evolve to to what sort of games you, you, you play now and also including your time in the military? Oh yeah. Uh, my, my historian uh, aspect of my life, my academic career, really focused on the American Civil War and World War II, especially the Eastern Front. And then when I got into studying why were the Germans so good at adaptability, the Germans, yes, they lost two world wars. Everyone will tell you that. But they inflicted four to one casualties. And except for our lack of strategy, their operational art and tactics were incredible. It's because they developed leaders through tools like war games, how to be more prepared the moment the, the first shots were fired to become adapt adaptive and change the commander's intent and mission statement based on changing uh, situation. So I got into that. But as I evolved in my wargaming career, I've gotten into all, as long as the the, the engines and the, the algorithms and everything allow playability. Uh, I like logistics involved, but not where it dominates a game like campaign in North Africa by SPI in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, which was all logistics game. That's important. But, uh, so I've, I've evolved. Now I have, uh, war games from the Polonic era, almost all of them, all John Tiller series. Dr. John Tiller was a great mathematician. Uh, and he just passed away, unfortunately. Uh, but, uh, the game design workshop is where all the updates come from now. I have a mix of Civil War, World War One, World War Two. Uh, I even just downloaded their Vietnam a tactical level game. Uh, I normally play grand tactical and operational art games. I don't play the squad level games, but they're good. I've played little bits of them because uh, I like a lot of maneuver. Uh, even have some, I have a War of 1812, Revolutionary War and Mexican War, all by John Tiller. I have about I'd say about two thirds of their titles now. I've been doing that since 2008. So, uh, and and I love the opponents I get that wanna, I'm playing five different games right now. Your, our game, a couple of the, 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 the phase before our game, which was from uh, North Anna to Cold Harbor, 
Um, I'm playing that with a couple of guys. I'm playing the Morongo campaign in Northern Italy with an Italian. He really lives oh, up nice. there, which is always cool. I got to play France 1940 against a real French colonel. Uh, we had two great games, full campaigns. It took forever. Uh, and I'm also playing, let's see what else? I'm playing three Civil War games. Oh, I'm playing op, uh, Operation Conrad, the attack on Budapest in 45 with another guy. So I play an array. Not, it's not, I have found out through my studies that as long as you apply the principles of leadership and the principles of war with the right learning feedback, uh, the periods are relevant. The principles apply. Uh, and that's what's important. So, yeah, the battlefield today is far more dispersed. You have precision weapons, uh, which put more demands on leadership. Uh, but like everyone's proclaiming how great the drones are. I've been I worked for the war fighting lab my last year, a year and a half ago, uh, trying to implement war game and maneuver warfare and education more into what they do. And for every revolutionary ideal like a drone, you have a counter ideal. Uh, but the principles of war are pretty well the same. And leadership to me is even going to be more taxed uh, through my war games with the, all the technologies and more dispersion, more uh, empowerment of people necessary, despite the fact that we say we're digital and we are information overload. That stuff goes out the window just like all other periods once contact made. So, uh, so that's, that's my perspective there. Well, thank you. So um, how do you apply the principles of maneuver warfare in wargaming then specifically? Well, I, the way I like to play a war game to start out with, so I can apply the principles is I don't like, there's a lot of guys that like to play for victory. I like to win too, but I like to win with, with the fog of fictional war applied. For example, I picked where I played this guy in Vagram, the 1809 campaign, and we started at the first battles. Well, I knew about the Battle of Vagram itself. I've been there and I've studied it. But all these little battles, I don't want to, I don't want to even view what the what the map looks like or only where my forces start. I want to totally go in because it, it makes me apply the principles of war and maneuver warfare, knowing as little about the opponent or as about the same as what really happened on the battlefield. So it's important. The downfall of war games, uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Lacey over at the War College. He's he's a big-time war gamer. You need to talk to him. He has done great work at the USMC War College in Brickenridge Hall. He he has a class which the, the, the war college students love that their favorite class is his war gaming class. He's been trying to create more freak, fog and friction of war, as Clausewitz said, in the war game where you don't have the, the overall view. Like you and I are using fog and friction. You get within a distance, I can kind of see you. There's a question mark there until I go recon. I like all that. Uh, and the other part of war games that I would like to see improvement on is like delayed information. For example, if I have a, that one of those 10-man cavalry units along the Chickamahogany, as soon as you make contact, I get like a report on it, or I see your unit. That wouldn't be right. I mean, they'd have to ride courier to a telegraph or ride there. It would take a, a full day, if not half a day, to get that information. So that's what uh, Jim Lacey over at UNC, UNC, 
at the War College has been trying to do where it's more realistic. And again, the student's favorite class, the one they remember is his class, playing the war games against each other. Uh, so that's going well. And that's someone that I recommend you, you get to interview too. Jim's a great guy. And uh, he, General Mullen was totally behind his implementation of war games. And the Krulak Center has been doing a lot. The, for innovation, they've been doing a lot of war gaming too. Uh, Ian, the author of the latest Boyd book, Anyway, Ian T. Brown. Yeah, we, we, we have him on docket to, uh, to interview Miss. Uh, uh, Ian's a great guy. He has made a lot of positive impacts there. And they're doing a lot of war game in there. So that's a, a, another. We're making inroads is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and always trying to just tweak it and make it better. But the main thing that well, when Jim Lacey started first war game, and he never had an AAR. Now he does. Uh, April of 2021. We ran a giant war game in the Brinkenridge in the big hall center there. And uh, what we were, he had a lot of people like me as observers taking notes and handing notes. They had incredible after action reviews with the students. And that's not the, the good after action review, which I teach people how to do in my workshops, is not one where like the general or sergeant major does all the talking. If I'm a good facilitator, I get you to tell me what you thought you did not wrong, but you could do better. That's the key. And you walk in there with a couple objectives, maybe three at the most, and do not go, what did you do? Three things you did great, three things you did wrong. No. You go, let's 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 talk about this this battle we just did. Who was so and so? Okay, what, what what did you see? Okay, and and so the facilitator, the guide, maybe. If they talk, in my opinion, there's no scientific data to back this up, but this is my observation after watching thousands of these things. If someone talk, if that facilitator talks more than 20%, he's wrong. It should be a guided learning event. And that's not only wargaming, but any kind of learning event needs to be concluded that way. Free play exercises, TDGs. I use the TDGs, which is a war game on how to teach people how to use mission command in, in, in the OODA uh, and when I do my, I tell my students, my clients, if I'm talking more than 20%, then I'm wrong. And and they, and unfortunately, they get it where they tell you what they've learned and what they need to do better. That's the key. Awesome. So you, you've mentioned also uh, over your career, you're a pro prolific uh, student of history. You went to uh, graduate school for history. Yeah. How do you combine the study of history with wargaming, particularly historically based wargaming? That's a really good question. I just posted something on the opponent uh, site that uh, they run. Uh, so when you study tables of organization and weapons, what I like about John Tiller War Games is they have done their homework. Weapons ranges, weapons effects, mass fires, precision fires. So you can combine what you already know with, with the war game you play and see the result. For example, I, get, I was given about one or two tours a month at Brandy Station, okay, just this west of where you're at uh, in Culpeper County, the biggest cavalry battle of the Civil War. Well, you probably you probably have Gettysburg as well. Brandy Station is one of the starting games in that scenarios in that thing, and I've got the updated version. And so when I play that game against an opponent and then I go on the train, the train itself has not changed a lot there's more woods than there were there at the time now uh and the roads are slightly different 
but when you have that plane and you actually stand on that ground, uh, you can say they, they could have done this or not done this. The key thing is being able to say, I don't think one of the miscalculations that players make is moving too, they can move too far and fast without fatigue with full equipment. That's one of the biggest mistakes that players make. So you have to be able to lend a realism uh, to the game itself from what reality is. I, my grandson, when he lived here with us, he played the shooter games, uh, or they called the, uh, that game box. Anyway, he was the first shooter all the time. And uh, oh, he was really good at it at 10, 11 years old. So one day I took him to, there's a uh, airsoft place in Manassas. And I took him to that and showed him the reality. He didn't like it at all. I said, but you're playing this first shooter, fully equipped, jumping off buildings and keep, you have to know the, you need to know the reality. War games are the same way. I like when they have rules and in the algorithm, uh, you have issues to deal with. Uh, fatigue at night, moving out of assembly area, like you and I are both trying to move at night and you, you leave the road out of column and you become uh, disordered. That's all good. Got to keep your guys within command range that decreases at night to one X. Those are all important things to deal with. Uh, so you're trying to trying to translate the reality into the war game. That's the hardest thing to do. Of course, you want to make it fun. I want to have fun. I don't want to spend all my time lost in the woods all the time. Uh, but uh, you, I, when I was planning my withdrawal from the lines you're seeing now, I had to really think of what roads I was going to use and how I was going to do that. It, that took a while. That's reality right there. So did that answer your question? Exactly. Uh, one issue I've noticed is when playing against uh, players, especially historical base war gaming, is when they try to view history as the script rather than the guide. Um, I'm doing a I'm doing a scenario right now uh, where it's it's uh, Jackson at Gettysburg. You know, the one arm Jackson now is is riding up with his whole second corps that's not been split up yet, uh, and and seeing how people are are. are based on the, the changes they try to replicate like okay i need to get to cemetery hill i need to get to little round top i need to get to Culp's hill it's like well maybe i don't want to fight there now i know those are your strengths i know that's where the union went to but if you're gonna go there well then you know i'll i i can just simply go around you i or, like the, the view especially with uh some john my i love john tiller i love the war game design suit of the work they've done part of the issue i have is i wish they would have every scenario with zero objective hexes there should be like it's the objective is the army the objective isn't little round top because if the enemy's not going to occupy it and they're not going to fight there then what's it's, that has no strategic value so it's, it's it's interesting to see how how history can be both a blessing and a curse on your understanding wargaming how, how would you agree with that statement oh everything you just said i agree with totally i love having the history as a guideline but i again the guys i don't like playing are the ones that they already know everything about the battle and they're not going to make any of the mistakes that were really made. And I'm like you, I don't like objective hexes. I don't like fixed units. Now what we talk about, like before we started in the game we're playing, my view has changed over the last year. Fixed units are good for like, you have Ben Butler working for you and he's still an army command, the army of the James, you know, he ain't going to be a doing any, the best he can do is just hold the Howlett line. Well, that was the Confederate version, but, hold this line of Bermuda hundred and provide you more troops like he did with uh, Smith's 18th Corps. But yeah, I agree with you totally. I, 
I like scenarios where, and you can do this in the game engines or the, the design part, there's no fixed units. Uh, unless you, you really want to, what's good about some of those rules though, is again, you, when you play a war game, the biggest downfall, say we are brilliant war game, suddenly, and I'm good, but I'm not brilliant because I'm very impatient. That's a downfall. Mm-hmm. But uh, now my my command style in that war game is everyone, every commander on that map is me. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? The real brilliance of a commander or the failure of a commander is not realizing the strengths and weakness of his subordinates as well as what his higher up wants. Okay. That was what Grant was bringing. He understood what Lincoln wanted. He also understood his subordinates and, and he wanted in, independent mind subordinates that carried out his, in, his outcome. Uh, so Grant was really good at that, even though like you and I talked about before, he had a hard time with the Army of Potomac. He had just not seen, that's why he went with him. He knew if he didn't come East and allow George Meade was a solid commander, but not a brilliant commander. The worst, the, the best they would get was a stalemate. I think if Grant had not been there and Meade had taken the law, law or taken the, the, the defeat at the wilderness, Grant was tactically defeated at the wilderness, mm-hmm. but Grant's brilliant move was continued to move. Meade, I think, would have retreated back across the Rappahannock and he would have stalemate, which is a Confederate victory. Okay. The, by this time of the war, the, the North could not afford stalemates. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 everything you said was right on the money. I, I agree with, but like I said, Jim Lacey and myself and Bruce, and then there's some guys on my mission command Facebook page that are historians and gamers. And one of them, a British consultant, Wolf Owens, who's written a lot and, and promoted war games, but his big thing with a war game is again, uh, I need to be able to, to <clears throat> here's my order to you. And, 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 and have the subordinate react that way versus what we do now where they're, they're an echo, echo of me, they're a replication of me on, on the, the map. So you have to have those things that are fog and friction that occur, delaying orders, radio jams, scrambling of a radio, not understood. That's what he's trying to get to. He's not against war gaming, but he's trying to take away what we call the God effect. If that makes it's sense. A, it's a very interesting point you brought up about like we're having to rely on uh, subordinates. And that's actually one thing I like about the John Tiller war game design studio system is that you can actually have multiple players on and try to simulate that. So I'm currently doing a, uh, a non-historical game takes place in uh, 1863, right before Gettysburg between Lee and Hooker on an area uh, to the west of, uh, of Fredericksburg. And I have, how we're doing is I'm with three other teammates. Each of them commands a corps. I command a corps as well, but I'm, I'm, I'm also simulating the army commander. So I'm issuing units like, okay, here's your objective. De- deploy your troops how you see fit. And it's interesting. Like some of my, I, I, some of the, my teammates are very experienced. Have they been playing longer since before I was born? Some of them have actually only recently got involved. So it's like, okay, so the commander is recently involved. Like maybe give them like tips or advice in my orders about how to set up your artillery, how to use interlocking fields of fire where to build your entrenches. And then some of my more experienced ones, like, oh, just, just get here, set them up. And then when I tell you to move forward to go, so it, 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 I love, I enjoy that flexibility and allows you just to understand the stresses of being a commander and dealing with subordinates. So let's uh, switch the conversation then to, to the game that we're playing, which, which right. is pretty fun. So as, as, as we mentioned, it's called uh, uh, to, uh, to the uh, Crossing the James, correct? 
Onto the James. Onto the James. So that's uh, the narrow of, of the Overland campaign. Yep. Yeah. So to our uh, listeners who are not in tune with Civil War history, it simulates uh, right around the Battle of Cold Harbor. And the map goes from right above the Cold Harbor to right below Petersburg. So that's a very large map. There is naval forces on both sides. You have Richmond and Petersburg. You have around slightly probably over 60,000 Confederates compared to around probably a, about double uh, Union forces. And it, it, it allow, it's, it's a, the large map allows for big strategic uh, movements and, and goals. And there's really multiple ways to, to cut it up. Um, I am the plane. Uh, I'm General Grant, uh, the, the commander of all the Union forces. You have under me the Army of the Potomac around Cole Harbor facing Lee's Army in Northern Virginia. And then you, I have some forces south near the Bermuda 100 area commanded by General Butler's Army of the James, uh, which is paired off against uh, local uh, uh, Richmond defense forces, as well as um, some North Carolina units uh, as well. So this it's, it's a very large game, and it's, it's a very... Um, it, it, it's, it's very time consuming to, to say the least, moving all, all these uh, disparate forces. But um, so coming, coming into this match, we we're only about probably 10 turns in and we've already been playing for a couple of weeks now. Um, <laughs> what, what, what um, I guess, uh, what do you bring to the battle that Lee was not able to bring? Well, I'm like, I, you, you've pleasantly surprised me on, hitting me in two directions as I'm trying to phase a withdrawal from Cold Harbor. As you found out from your last turn, I'm not all the way pulled off the line. Uh, but we, it, we, after Grant's repulse, massive repulse at Cold Harbor, Lee was in a dilemma in that Piedmont had just taken place in the eastern side of the valley, on the eastern side of the of Shenandoah Valley. And he had to do something. So he decides to send early in his 10,000 guys from the second corps to uh, Lynchburg to stop uh, David Hunter. Uh, the other part that's well replicated is Lee had also sent two, three of, two of his three cavalry divisions under Wade Hampton to stop Philip Sheridan from uh, moving to the valley and joining Hunter. And Pavilion Station is another good game to play with that. So my dilemma right now is I don't have a lot of cavalry. Uh, matter of fact, you're meeting most of the cavalry I have. I, in both north and south of the James, we ran into each other on the median battle. I know you're going to do something. Are you going to go for Petersburg or are you going to try to go around my left side while I'm thinking you're going to want to see? I have Lee's advantage right now is he knew Grant was not going to move to his right. He was, gonna, he was worried about him getting south of the James. Problem is, Grant Lee had to send away some of his best forces to deal with other things, and it worked out strategically for a while. So I'm operating with uh, two corps and then those local forces, which generate basically a, a large division or another small corps. But I only have about three cavalry brigades. And so my ability to... I have it, I think, harder than Lee. Lee knew Grant was going to move somewhere south. He just didn't know when and where. So he didn't, in the start of the game, I have no cavalry on my left flank, which you were smart to take advantage of. I had to send out a reconnaissance force, which ran into your cavalry. The Union is left with, with not a great, not a great, because Sheridan took three of his, two of his three divisions, left Wilson's division, 
And then there was some other cavalry in the Army of the James and part of the Ninth Corps. Uh, so it, it's the same dilemma Lee's in, you know, uh, that he was in. Where if I pull back too fast from north of the Chickamahogany, then you may be able to transfer things south. So it's just, it's a balancing act. It's a great challenge, though. I love it. Yeah, it, it, it is a great scenario. And one of the things that's playing as Grant is when you read the history books, you, I mean, Grant, uh, over the Overland campaign, what was criticized for his, his tactics, both by contemporary and by historians, saying that he treated his army like a blunt object. But then reading deeper into it, the reason why is because look at his, look at his corps commanders at the time. Uh, I mean, Warren was nothing really to write home about. He did a decent job at Gettysburg. It has a few instances, but he wasn't necessarily, I think, one of the Union Army's best corps commanders. General Burnside, well, we, we, we know what his, his history was like. He got thrashed at Gettysburg. I'm oh, no, sorry, not Gettysburg. He got Fredericksburg uh, and had a decent success in Knoxville, but all the, ultimately was a pretty unremarkable commander. Yeah. You have General Wright, who is a new corps commander at the time with very little experience by the time Cold Harbor is happening. Yep. And then you look at the Army of the James commanded by Butler, and because the Union historically at the time uh, was disadvantaged by the fact that it was essentially a multi-party state, Lincoln had to keep the Democrats in and a lot of the political generals that came with it, where the Confederacy, for the large part historically, was almost a one-party state in a sense, so it was largely ex-Democrats. So they didn't necessarily have to deal with all having to, to keep all the political generals. So that, that's one of the advantages I'm coming with. It's like, okay, well, it's like, I'm in charge now. I, I like I don't have to deal with, with with um, you know, trying to kick Butler in the pants and tell him to move or tell try to get Burnside or, or uh, or, or or Warren to, to really start taking initiative. And that also gives you greater appreciation for Grant. The reason why he had a sick, as I mentioned, Army Potomac was because it was it was difficult to to breed um, initiative and and as you said, like mission commands with a lot of these individuals. So you looked at about like, for instance, Battle of Cold Harbor, like, why didn't he flank? Like, well, because his subordinates were worried about what Lee was going to do to them rather than what they were going to do to Lee. He, it, was, it was difficult to foster initiative in, in that sort of, in, in the Army of Potomac that, at that time. So it's, 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 it's fun to play this scenario without sort of the historical constraints because you get to see, well, like, well, what if Grant was able to foster initiative better among his subordinates and what, what would have, would have happened? Exactly. Uh... The thing that I've done detailed research on Cold Harbor as well and up to the crossing of the James in Petersburg the first few days through the 19th of June, actually 12th through 19th June. And the thing that struck me, what Grant changed and allowed me to do what Meade was bringing about was they planned, it's interesting, they planned a very sequential and detailed withdrawal from the Cold Harbor. They built two new reserve lines in the back and they phased it out by brigades and divisions uh, that really kept caught Lee off guard. And everyone did well because they were so tightly controlled, like they had been used to before Grant. Where things go sour was, and Hancock was his best corps commander, but Hancock was suffering from a, a wound that wouldn't heal. So he was in constant pain. Uh, you see that really come to a fruitation during Ream Station in August when he loses 5,000 men captured. Uh, Lee's problem at this time was his best corps commander, Drew Early, is sent to the Valley, and his best other corps commander was Hampton, who just took over the Calvary Corps. He had Ewell, who was having mental issues, and uh, Ewell was not himself. 
And then he had AP Hill that when he wasn't ill was, was a decent, good division commander, but had not really mastered the core commanders uh, yet, as we saw at uh, North Anna with AP Hill. So, uh, and then Longstreet, of course, had been wounded the second day of Wilderness, uh, who was still uh, uh, getting better. He wouldn't have him back until February of 65. So Lee's problem is uh, almost the same, but different than the grants. He just don't have any subordinates that he can give mission orders to and rely on. So he can think about that. He's having to do Corps commander and division commander, even though I would argue that the division commanders on both sides were very competent as were the brigade commanders. Cream of the crop had risen by that time due to casualties. Uh, so uh, they're matches in there. But yeah, that was a good way to describe it. So I have all those things to worry about. It's, it's, it's quite, and I have places where I don't have the troops I need and, and it's easy for you to take advantage of it. So I'm right now moving guys all over the place trying to figure it out. But it, uh, those are all good mental. We know I have studied the, uh, the, how the brain learns and, and things like that. And uh, what's his name? Or, or Dr. Robert Bork, uh, somebody that Bruce and I follow. Uh, he's the dean of psychology uh, for UCLA. And he's considered the leading learning guy in the world. And what he advocates is exactly how we're learning. You learn by doing, and then you're shown what the answer is. Or you learn by, so he, Dr. Bork argues, and I've been to one of his lectures, and he's got something called the Learning Lab uh, on, online, which is incredible reading. But Dr. Bork says, instead of signing the reading and doing it, and then doing the test, you kind of do the test, learn from it, and then you do the reading. So like when you do a staff writing, you get assigned all this reading to do. People, I don't assign any reading. I said, let's go through it. Tell me what you know, what you would do in this situation, and then read about it, and it sticks better. So uh, that's why Wargaming is really good about learning about history, as long as you have a good facilitator to guide you in the learning. Because people still need not structure like we have in most courses, but guidance. So then what would it be, I guess, your your recommendation of how to then use Wargaming as, as, as a teaching tool then? Well, Wargaming, of course, it depends on what the teaching tool you want. If you're teaching history, it's awesome. If you're teaching adaptability, it can be taught. Uh, it can be adapted to that course. For example, we do IT firms and tech firms. They're really concerned about ransomware and cyber war. We've adapted those type of, of situations, those type of problem sets using a war game, okay, where, hey, you're in this situation now. This is happening. What are you going to do? And they're, and they're given time limits. And they love that part the most because they say, oh, normally we get all night to figure it out or all day. And that's not what's really going to be like. So wargaming can be applied if people know how to do it. And we we offer our courses on emergencies.com under adaptive leader training. Uh, so we can we found out we can adapt it to any organization regardless. I do police. I have police design their own war games about police centric games. Uh, I've done maritime. Uh, of course, tech firms, think tanks. So wargaming is a tool about how to teach people to think better and more adaptive. So it can be used anywhere. It's got to be. But again, I keep stressing this point because the way I see it used normally is not a good way. That is people do it for fun, but they don't do it for learning. 
The point is they never follow up with a good AR. Like I said, I like opponents I play that we talk about. I've got one guy I'm playing, a doctor. We're actually playing North Anna to Cold Harbor right now. And we both go back and forth and talk about without getting, you know, we're using fog of war, of course, but hey, this is what I did wrong or this is what I see. And it's that's a good way to do it. But if you don't use it that way, like the biggest mistake the Marines make the TDGs, and I've seen over a thousand of them presented in the last 20 years, is what's your what's your what are you gonna do, Marine? Okay, he's gonna do this. Okay, what are you gonna do, Marine? Or what do you think about it? It should be instead, I have a methodology called the outcomes-based learning methodology, where you go up, everyone does their course of action, and then you have to defend it against opponents. And then we break those courses of action down using the OODA loop, using facts and assumptions. So there's a lot of learning. And people always go, I didn't realize so-and-so thought that way. Well, that they work together and all I just drove you to know that person more and how they think, strengths and weaknesses. So that's how war games need to be integrated. They're they're great, they really are, but they got to be modified based on the environment. And 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 the if the methodology is done correctly, they can be used for any kind of learning. Math, even. Oh, awesome! Thank you. So, to, to start wrapping it up, um, so what would you recommend? Uh, what some some specific titles or series would you recommend for uh, Marines or listeners in general to get uh, interested and started with uh, wargaming? That's a that's a great question. I like it. Uh, to get people involved, find out what period they like, okay, and let them do that period. For, for Marines at the junior level, be it enlisted or officer, uh, John Tiller, or WDS, War Design uh, Workshop, they have some great squad level games, modern ones too, okay? Uh, start playing with those. They have great, their artificial intelligence is doing better now. The problem with when you just play artificial intelligence is you're, you have to be self-disciplined and learn from it because everybody wants to kick the crap out of the AI. The AI still not gotten good enough to really beat you badly unless it's a situation where the AI does well with a defense or a mass attack. Uh, but when it's just you playing it, you can learn some of the wrong lessons. So the thing I like about the games we play is you can play by email, PBEM, and our hot seat, and that's what's needed with the ability to learn from each other. So it depends on the period you like, but for junior leaders, uh, I'd start at the squad level, which they have a whole array of titles. For guys like us, for middle echelon and high echelon, uh, do the, uh, now JDS makes strategic level games and operational level games, uh, do those. And then what we're playing is grand tactical and operational art games, more grand tactical. Uh, but uh, it depends on what the outcome. You have to determine also the outcome. What do you want to achieve with this game? You have to ask that and then implement the game that you think will achieve that outcome. So. Awesome. Thank you very much. And for those interested, we actually have uh, the War Game Desire Studio games recommended on our website portal at the Marine Corps Association website within the professional development sphere. So please check them out. And uh, for every series, there is a, a club associated with it. I'm a member of the American Civil War Gaming Club. Highly recommend it. Please feel to join if you're looking to learn more about the Civil War or, or find some uh, competitors. But uh, Don, thanks for uh, for coming on. Really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can have you back on maybe in a, 
in a couple months, we can do an a, uh, do an AAR. And yeah, talk about, uh, you know, what went right, what went wrong, and then uh, go from there. Okay, Bill, thank you. This has been great, and good luck with uh, this series. This is good what you're doing. Awesome. Well, well thank you again, and everyone, uh, stay safe, uh, keep learning, and start gaming. Scuttlebutt is a production of the Marine Corps Association. I am William Truding, but you've also heard the voices or contributions of Vic Rubel, USMC retired, Anti Lichman, or Ty Frazier. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the official stance of the Marine Corps, DOD, or Marine Corps Association.